Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This one is part four of the series I've been doing with our beloved friend Pete Rollins. This is part four, Pete Rollins on God, and we actually recorded it in Belfast. And uh, they hooked up some mics, and we had this conversation. And uh, I don't know about you, but this whole series with Pete, this whole series of conversations, interviews, whatever you call them, has been oh, just, just amazing. Um, so they recorded this conversation, and then we got the file, and I don't know if there's some funky reverb or something on it, so it sounds a little, uh, I don't know, echoey. So just wanted to know, we know that, but but the conversation and what Pete did was so profound. We're like, we're just going to put it out anyway. So uh, there you have it. Hope you enjoy. Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This one we are doing from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and uh, my beloved friend Pete Rollins is with me. I can't believe you're in Belfast. <laughs> I can't believe you're here. It's incredible in my hometown. I love it. I love it. I'm sitting there watching you do your thing and going, this, this is fantastic. <laughs> oh, so, um, so we've been doing this series. This is we thought, if we're going to finish the series right, let's finish this four-part series on God in Belfast, Pete's hometown. And um, We flew here especially for we, this we flew here just, <laughs> Right, right, right. So last time we talked, we were in the back house in L.A., and now yeah. we're here. Tell me, there's such a, Belfast has such a history of violence, what it was like to grow up here. Yeah, well, you've walked around the city. Yeah. It's a tiny city. Uh, when I grew up, that was walled. Uh, there were military walls right around the whole thing with these checkpoints, uh, these tunnels that you walked through, and uh, you were body searched. You had dogs, sniffer dogs. The army were everywhere. There was military vehicles everywhere. And then every time you went into a shop, you got patted down as well. Like, I remember the first time I went to Scotland, and I went into a shop, and I stood there, and my friend was like, why are you standing there? And go, well, someone's got a you know, search me. Like just the grocery store? Just a grocery store, any any shop, every shop you had to be padded down. It's like TSA. Yeah. Like American airport security, but just to go to the grocery store. Just to go to the grocery store. And that was after passing through a major security checkpoint with dogs, rifles pointed at you, uh, you know, just to go into the city center. And the routes, I remember one time uh, when you, I first visited you when you were still living here, 2008, you took me to a part of town where like one side of the street was Protestant, one side was Catholic, and that if you went into this neighborhood and you were from this neighborhood, you would get beaten up, and if you were in this neighborhood and you went to that neighborhood, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. It was like one street. It was, yeah, and this, there's a, yeah, it was probably the Falls Road and the Shankill Road, and there's a massive peace wall between them. We have the most peace walls in Europe. I think we still do. We even have a peace wall that goes through the center of a park. So one park is for Catholics and one side of the park is for Protestants. It's a peace wall that keeps all the divisions intact. Yes, keeps you and your side and the other person on their side. But you are literally five to ten feet away from, you know, the other. You, you, the wall, some of my friends have the wall where it's, it's in their back garden. The back, out, out just beyond their back garden is a massive wall. And on the other side of that wall is, you know, a Protestant's back garden. And all this division came from Protestant Catholic God, beliefs about God, when tribal affiliation. That 
that got pulled in, that got pulled in, but a lot of it was, was political and is political, you know, is Northern Ireland part of the rest of Ireland or is it part of the United Kingdom? So at the moment it's part of the United Kingdom, but a lot of the conflict was about uniting Ireland together. But, but the cipher or the way we thought of this was through Protestant and Catholic. And it was incredible, there's a, there's a true story about a guy walking down the street in Belfast, this group of hard lads stop him and say, you're a Protestant or a Catholic? And of course that was to tell what side you were on. And he said, well, actually I'm Muslim. And they said, yeah, okay, but are you a Protestant Muslim or a Catholic Muslim, right? Because everything was Protestant or Catholic. There was, no, there was nothing else. You had to be one or the other. Even if you were a Jewish, you were a Protestant Jew or a Catholic Jew. And that, that defined everything. When you were growing up, did, I mean, did you think this is insane? Or was it, was it, did you think, oh, this is just normal? The rest of the world must be like this? Did you know this was unusual? Did you think this was insane? What was it like? No, I thought it was completely normal. So that was when, when I went to, say, Scotland, and I was like, why am I not being patted down? Or when I went to England, and there was um, an explosion, a small explosion, and people freaked out. Because I, I don't know whether it was the IRA or whatever happened, but I was just standing there going, why is everybody freaking out? Why? So it's a bomb, but we didn't get hit. It's fine. <laughs> so it, that was normal. And what was weird was, was how a lot of the rest of the world experienced life. Really? Yeah. I mean, we, on a regular basis, there'd be bomb scares. You'd be in the swimming pool, and they would, there'd be an alarm. You'd get out. You'd have to go onto the street. They'd check the whole place, and then you'd go back in. That was just a regular occurrence. And, and having rifles pointed at you as you walk down the street, just a regular occurrence. Wow. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm interested in how your work is about, like you were saying in one of the earlier episodes, about studying philosophy would be more of a theologian. And that so much of your work has been how we talk about God. Yeah. What we talk about when we talk about God. Yes. I just like saying the title of one of my books over and over again. You are a good title maker. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, people should know. I, mean, I don't know if you ever said this, but Rob says, if you ever ask him what he's most proud of, he says, I think I'm good at naming books. <laughs> That's his superpower. He's got this. In fact, he said to me, I was having trouble naming a book. Rob says, like, that is my superpower. You have a problem naming a book, come round to my house. Did I say that? He did, yeah. It's your superpower. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, so you talked uh, about God as the absurd, you talked about God as the real, the imaginary, the symbolic. symbolic. We talked about God as ground of being, hyper being, event, super being. Wow, we've um, done a lot. But this episode, you're going to take us through, we, we had talked about you helping us understand how we talk about God and the central elements to how we talk about God. Yeah, I mean, what I'm interested here is, is, is what, what is happens when we say something like, I believe Jesus is God, or, um, you know, whatever other religious statements we make, what's going on? Um, and uh, one way to think about it is, if you've got a kid, and uh, you say, my child is the most beautiful child in the world, right? what are you saying there? Because if someone else comes along and says, well, your child's not the most beautiful child in the world. You know, your child's got big ears. Like, his, your child's got a funny nose and his eyes are wonky, right? Um, they're misunderstanding what you mean when you say your child's the most beautiful child in the world. It's like if I give my dad a mug that says world's greatest father on Father's Day. And someone goes like, you literally think your, your dad's the best dad in the world? They're missing the point. 
There's actually, I saw a comic book one time where the factory that makes those mugs, they literally, one comes out and then they, they shut it down and the foreman comes down and the guy at the belt says, it would be logically ridiculous to create more than one world's greatest dad mug. You know, there can be only one. So what's happening when a parent says that? Uh, now, by the way, some parents are, are literalists. Some parents literally think their child's the most beautiful child in the world. They're the parents who maybe put their children into pageants because they think literally it's, it's their child, their baby, and then it's baby Jesus, and then whatever other baby, you know, but their baby is objectively the most beautiful baby in the world. So there are some, very few parents, but who, who might, as I say, think literally, my child is just so stunningly beautiful, everyone's ugly. But of course, the opposite isn't true. The opposite isn't, oh, I believe my child is mediocre or average looking. They don't mean that either, right? So what's going on? Well, so there's an objective element. There's a baby. There's an objective baby there. But then there's also a subjective element. That baby has made an impact, means something to you. So that child, is like the, the, your next door neighbor's child has no subjective interest in you if you don't know them. They're just a child. But your child has a subjective impact in your life. They become the measure of what is beautiful. They become the measure of what is true. So subjective, it has done something to you. Yes. Objective fact. Yeah. So like you, you're sitting in a coffee shop. Um, there's lots of people in the coffee shop. Some of them are so important to other people in the world, but they're not really important to you. But there's, there's maybe someone in the coffee shop who is subjectively important to you. They, they stand out from everybody. In fact, if the person isn't there, their absence is more present than the presence of all the people sitting around you. Because although they're objectively there, they're not subjectively inside you. They, they haven't made an impact on you like other people. So there's that subjective element. But there's also a third element, and we can call this evental, because an event has happened. And the evental element is that it, it changes you, makes you more beautiful, humanizes you. So if I say, this child is the most beautiful child in the world, there's the objective child, there's subjectively, they are important to you, and also they help you reorient your life. Maybe you care about promotions at work, you care about impressing people at your church, and then you have a child and you don't really care about that anymore. Your child brings grace and humanity to you. And so if you try to cut one of those elements out, it doesn't work. If you say, my child's the most beautiful child in the world, and someone says, do you literally mean that? You can't even answer them. You don't even know what to say. You're like, what, what are you saying? You can't divorce that from the fact that I'm making also a subjective statement and also a statement about something that has changed my life. So someone says to me, Pete, do you think you know, Jesus is the son of God or something? And they, they, what they mean by that is they mean one element of that trinity, the objective side. They're saying, cut out the subjective and cut out the evental element and just tell me objectively. And it's impossible to answer because like, no, you're treating theological language like philosophical language or like scientific language. It's like saying to a parent, no, 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 forget about you know, your child being your child. Forget about your child making you a more beautiful person. Do you literally think your child's the most beautiful child in the world? Answer me yes or no. You're like, I can't answer that. It's not yes or no. It's like my child is the measure of beauty to me and has changed me. And, and so 
if you, if you cut one of those elements, the whole thing falls apart. Theology is a language that has an objective element. You hear a story, for example, about some religious thing that touches you, that you go, oh, I see myself in that. That gives me language for something. Whereas maybe another religious language just leaves you cold. And then thirdly, it transforms you. And if, if, if those three elements aren't there, it's not theological language. Uh, so when people talk about God and will say things like, well, you know, they're the well, I'm thinking about my own ordination when I became a pastor. They did a day, I had a day of exams, oral exams where they asked me all these questions, like a whole panel of people. But what struck me is the questions were like, if we found 3rd Corinthians, because of these letters in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, one of the questions was like, if we found a 3rd Corinthians letter, should we add it to the Bible? This is like the kind of questions. Yeah. I remember one of the questions was, Jesus says he only does what God tells him to do, but he also says God and I are one, so which is it? Mm. Um, and I remember I got marked down. They had some criticisms of me because I didn't make the proper distinction between um, ministerial function and ontological worth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody in the course of the day asked, like, are you a good husband? Um, nobody asked, D have you, uh, tell us about somebody who hurt you that you've forgiven. Yep. Or how do you spend your money? Of course, I didn't have any, so that would have been a short answer. Yeah. But what's so interesting to me is I was tested and ordained to be a pastor with no questions about who I actually am or my conduct or whether any of these things that I was supposed to talk about publicly had actually done anything to me or my heart. Yeah. Yeah, this is what the French existentialist Gabriel Marcel um, he, he wrote about the difference between a problem and a mystery. He said something is a problem when you stand over and against it and you look at it. So for example, the problem of suffering. You look at suffering, you ask, why is there suffering in the world? Where does it come from, etc.? But he said a mystery is when you are so intertwined with what you're exploring that you can't stand apart from it. It's like, for example, when you enter into suffering or grief, you can't stand back, you're within it. And for Marcel, uh, you know, the kind of theological language we're talking about is inherently a mystery. It, is, it, has, an, it has an element of critical reflection and all of that, but, but you're within it. And, and if you treat it as a problem, you actually lose the very truth and essence of what spiritual language is about. So, when, so when you talk about theology, when people talk about God, you're looking for all three of those to be present. Yeah, it's like a, what, I think they call it a Borromean knot. It's a knot that's made okay. up of three parts. Borromean? A, a, a Borromean knot, a Borromean knot. Borromean, that's it. I'm sure somebody can correct me. Is on that from the, sailing? Where did you get that word? Um, it's an, it's a, an old term. I think they used to have them in coats of arms and stuff. It's a kind of form of trinity. It's a, it's okay. a form of showing three things that mm -hmm. are so intertwined. But if you cut one element of the knot, the other two fall apart. It's like the, the three are required to hold it together. 
So what's an so when people talk about God or what they mean by God, what's the objective element then? So the objective element is you know something has happened. It might have been an experience. It might have been something they read. It might have been a conversation they had with something. Something will have taken place. This is actually think about it in terms of a miracle. So a miracle for someone like Paul Tillich is not something weird happens in the world. That's just the first element. But something has happened. You had this incredible conversation, and it really touched your life. So the objective element of a miracle is something kind of weird happens. But weird things happen all the time. Weird is really the word we use for I don't know what happened there. <laughs> we may have an explanation someday. So something weird happens, but it also touches you.、Um, so, for example, someone you love, their cancer goes into remission. But that's not a miracle. You know that happens to lots of people. But then subjectively, wow, it touches you because you love them. It opens you up. You become more grateful. It bonds you to them.、Exactly. You realize that life is this precious gift. All these things happen in you because of the.、Uh, yes. Okay. That's the eventual element. So the, the subjective element is is that there you love them. And yes, the eventual element is this cancer remission <gasps> opens you up to new worlds and, and and makes you more thankful for the world you live in. Makes everything colorful again. You know where everything was a, a dull shade of grey, just like most of my clothes. <laughs> But it, you know, I, you look more like Rob Bell's clothes. Rob dresses a lot more colourfully than me. Not a lot more colourfully, but、I、like two colours. That's two more than me. <laughs> But I'm colour blind, so that's my problem. But yeah, so there's the objective element: the cancer goes into remission. The subjective element: you love that person, and the eventual element: whoa, that that just brings colour back into your world. So, so yeah, the objective element is someone has read a story and say in the Bible, or they've heard something, or they looked at a sunset. That's the objective element. But it cannot be divorced because because someone else sees the same sunset, it does nothing for them,、it、doesn't do anything, right? It didn't hit them subjectively. So that's the subjective element, and then you're brought into a new type of world, which we can call rebirth. In the Bible, they call it rebirth, and Think about birth. You don't experience birth. You don't experience life. Life allows you to experience. So every time I try to experience my own life and think about it, I just fall into these weird paradoxes. Life is not what you experience; it's what allows you to experience. So when we talk about rebirth, we are talking about a form of life that enables us to experience everything differently. Everything is transformed.、Yes. This means, by the way, that religious experience is not an experience of anything. It's what transforms your experience of everything. If religious experience was just an experience, you can get better experiences from taking ayahuasca, from like drinking or something like、yeah. that. But for the mystics, the true religious experience didn't mean that a new experience happened in your life. It meant that all of the experiences you have are fundamentally transformed. Oh, I love that. And this is why certain questions, the way this is helping me understand, certain questions lose their—they aren't interesting questions. Like you began with the is, "Is Jesus the Son of God?" When I hear the question "Is Jesus the Son of God?" which I've gotten, and it's generally by somebody who's very religious, who's it's like a it's like a litmus test. Like、yeah. you, you're either going to say yes or no, and I'm either in their camp or out of their camp. But I don't hear that question that way because I understand "son of God" was a term the Romans used、yep. about somebody who had a unique relationship with the divine.、Yep. So the Caesars 
were sons of God. Were sons of God. These were the rulers, the emperors, the political leaders who they believed ruled with the power of the gods. Julius Caesar was born of a virgin. You know? Born of a virgin, son, yeah. of God. son of God. And so this phrase was a way of talking about somebody who had a unique presence in the world and power, which basically for the Caesars meant kill everybody who rebels against you and conquer in military power. Yes. I mean, this was a fundamentally political statement. It was like, yes. here's the son of God, wasn't born in a palace, but in a manger. Right, Doesn't right. Doesn't have an army, but has disciples, you know? So when Jesus comes along and the phrase son of God gets used about him, they're saying he has a special relationship with the divine, a unique connection. But he then does everything upside down. He doesn't come in on a horse, he comes in on a donkey. He doesn't come in with coercive military violence. He comes in with nonviolent compassion. He doesn't come in to build his empire bigger. He comes to help everybody who's been kicked to the edges by empire. Yeah. So when somebody says, is Jesus the son of God? First off, the phrase was a figurative speech. So I've had people say to me, do you literally believe he's the son of God? Which is funny because son of God was like a figurative. It wasn't a literal term. It was like a symbolic term. So I understand him to be the son of God with a special relationship with the divine, a unique to be in the world in a particular way, and that he calls us to be in, a, in the world in that similar way, where we don't seek to just build our empire bigger, but we take whatever we've been given and try to pass it around, try to help the least of these. So when I hear that question, is Jesus the son of God? That person thinks this is a really serious question, but to me, they're trivializing the power of this term and understanding and story to actually transform the way you see your life in the world. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, and the Son of God good is Lord, a perfect that was a big example. rant right there. That was great. So good, though. So good. Because, <laughs> because whenever uh, people started using the word Son of God for Jesus, there was an objective element as in there was somebody there. You know, let's, yes. let's go as, as, as liberal as we can and go, we don't know anything about this person, we just got the testimony, but someone was existed who people wanted to use this term for. Yes. So son of God, there was an objective, something happened in history. The subjective element is son of God, which meant subjectively we encounter you as, as this special, something special. We encounter the divine in you. We encounter you divine in you. And it had an evental element. It was, we want to give our lives to a better world. There's a new, and they call it the kingdom of God, but we can call it the republic of God or whatever, but this this, there is a new world, there is a different way of being, and we have to try to instantiate it. So, Son of God, it, it's, it, whenever, just next time someone asks you something like that, just ask them, is their child the most beautiful child in the world? Because <laughs> it's a similar kind of thing. It's like, it makes no sense. Like, okay, don't, we're, forget about the subjective and the eventual element of that. Just tell me objectively, is your child objectively the most beautiful child in the world? Objectively, don't, don't talk about the subjective. Just answer me. Because it's the same type of question. You mean it absolutely seriously. I am not going to buy my dad a mug that says, world's most okay dad. You're definitely in the top 50%. I've, I've met better, but I've also seen worse. You're all right. Now, actually, I probably would buy that mug. It would be quite funny. Yes. But, but the point is, it's like, I absolutely believe that my dad is the best dad in the world. Absolutely, I believe that. Does that mean that the person beside me who says their dad's the greatest dad in the world, that I'm in conflict with them? Absolutely not. There is, I absolutely believe it. But because there is an objective and a subjective and an eventual dimension, none of which can be divorced from it. It's like saying space-time. You can't have space without time, time without space. They are dimensions that are intimately intertwined. Oh, this, this, 
this helps me understand so much. I, when I became a pastor, so I got ordained like that, a bunch of Bible quiz, basically. But then I started being a pastor and interacting with people. And some people, the things I was talking about in my sermons, the, the path of becoming a student, a student of Jesus, a believer, however you want to say it, some people were actually on the path. They were like growing and transforming. And some people I noticed just wanted to keep repeating these statements about we believe this, I believe this, does so-and-so not believe this? And that some of those people I observed kept almost like, kept clinging to, is Jesus the Son of God? As a way of avoiding the really messy work of becoming a new kind of person. Yes. And I mean, that the, these religious phrases, I realize now what happened to me is I, I gradually was like, without... Now that, now that you've given me these three things, without the subjective and in evental, you're, you're like a clanging symbol. Yeah. I mean, have you ever, I'm sure you have, watched these YouTube debates where there's, you know, an atheist and a theist and they're fighting it out. And it's like watching someone who's saying, my child is objectively the most beautiful child in the world. <laughs> someone else saying, no, your child's objectively your child not is the most- ugly. But ugly, you know? <laughs> and, and you're watching it and you're going, Everyone else is like, this is the most bizarre thing in the world. <laughs> and I realize why I don't, I've never done debates because I was always like, I'm playing a different game. Yeah. This is just, I'm so bored with a discussion about whether God exists or not. I can't even stand it. Yeah. Um, but how we are transformed yeah. and what has spoken to you and why some people the lights are on there's a reverent hum and others it's just it's sort of flat there's yeah. nothing and some of those people are very very smart but there's no sacred hum yeah it's like it's like if you have a flag a flag is is literal it's cloth and it's color but if a flag means something to you like you grew up in that country that also has a subjective meaning to you and for some people it also has an eventual dimension that that flag you know is about they want to see their country be gracious to the outsider, to welcome in immigrants, yeah. to, to bring freedom and service, justice. Service, sacrifice, yeah. courage. Exactly. So the flag for that person has an objective, subjective, and eventual element. So if you say to them, it's just a flag, it's just color and material, they're like, well, no, it's not. But of it's course more. it is objectively. But it's like you're, you're completely missing what it means. It, is, it has those three elements for the person. You know that, and and take one of those away, and that's why when people say, "Oh, are you a literalist, or is this just symbolic?" You're going, no, use only use the term just literalism, just literal, just objective, because something that's objective is just objective. It's it's boring. It's just something like, as I say, the person in the, the hospital bed next to my father, their heart stops, and half an hour later, their their heart's beating again. Fantastic, but that's just literal. But if that's my father. That hits me subjectively and, and, and tells me of a, of, a, of a different type of world where life can overcome death. So that's, that's the language. Ah, oh, this is so good. Objective, subjective, evental. Yeah. That's so good. So good. Okay, uh, 
the Belfast Gay Pride Parade. It's just starting. We can hear it in the background. There's a club across the street from where we are called the Lenin. The is Kremlin. Called, the Kremlin? Yeah. Is it called the Kremlin? Yeah. There's a huge statue of Lenin out front. It's and gay, that's where yeah. the parade is going to start. That's a big gay bar. I think it was the first gay bar in Belfast. And it, throughout the Troubles, it was there. Um, so it's a very symbolic place, yeah. Well, the parade's about to start. I can hear the music. It's going to get really loud. Um, thank you for doing these these four episodes. Yeah, well, listen, I've just had a ball. Thank you for everything you've done and for being a type of eventful experience in my life, Rob, <laughs> you have, you know, oh, so... My I appreciate everything what you do. Are you? Um, what's next? Is there a book? Another book in the works? Yeah, another book in the works. I'm actually as well. I'm going to be following in Rob's footsteps. He is the Paul. I because he was in Australia and New Zealand recently. I'm going You're to be in Australia, New Zealand in September. Um, and oh, then great. I'm, I'm here in Belfast because I'm planning my little festival. Forty people for four days in Ireland. We conspire together. It's a festival of dangerous ideas. And where Do you we, call it the festival of dangerous ideas? Informally, I need to call it that for, more formally. It's called Wake, W-A-K-E, because okay. Wake is a celebration that happens after a funeral. And for most of the people who come, something's died in their life. Often a form of religious fundamentalism, mm. and um, they're going, "Well, how do I mourn that?" And how do I celebrate what comes next? Mm-hmm. So wake, I'll be, I'm prepping for, for wake. And that's early next year? Yep, uh, uh, April, April next year. And people can get all this at, at PeteRollins.net? Yeah, in fact, you know, I have to tell you this, I think I did mention last time, but since I said on your podcast, I've got a .net, I wish I had a .com. A friend uh, uh, who I know a little bit comes to a couple of my events, he listened and he wrote to me and says, Pete, I bought you .com. So now I have got PeterRollins.com. I am now in the like big time. You could tell people that you'd like. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know, nice. like a, a nice local gym, you know. <laughs> what's the uh, What's the next book about? Um, it's going to explore personal and political transformation. How do we um, look at our ghosts that haunt us, the difficulties in our society and in our individual lives? How do we wrestle with them, and how do we How do we penetrate deeper life? Because mere longevity of life means nothing. If I could give everlasting life to people, but they couldn't enjoy the depth of their life, they they would be crying for death. So my my book is about life before death, which is the big question. The question of, is life possible before we die? Is life possible spiritually, personally, and politically? Uh, and, And so my book really wants to delve into that question, the question of life before death. So good. So good. Thank you, Thank you so much. I, I need a good title, but so I'm going to be coming around to get a title for it. <laughs> Whatever it's called, Rob will have either given me the title or helped me get there. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Oh, beautiful. All right. Grace and peace, my friends.